Episode 124 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks, offering a month of unrestricted use, totally free right now, and you don't need a credit card for the trial. To claim your free month, go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. If you tell a group of smart people that you've handpicked that most people can't come to consensus and if we can't, it's okay, you'll fix it, they will fight you to prove that they can come together around consensus. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, and welcome once again to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. We, of course, dig into the topic of leadership and also things like personal development, productivity, career, business, marketing, and entrepreneurship. And the emphasis today is actually on the area of sales. We're going to sit down in just a moment with Tim Sanders. He's the author of Deal Storming, the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges. I'm going to ask Tim about some of the developments from the last couple of decades that have increased the complexity of the sales process. I'll ask about the myth of the lone genius and how we tend to romanticize this myth. I'll ask Tim to share how to best communicate with the salesperson or team concerned with losing control over ownership of the process and much, much more. Even if you're pleased with your current accounting software, I want to encourage you to give FreshBooks a try. There's no cost or obligation in doing so. And I wouldn't be surprised if, like some of my friends and family, you find the cloud accounting software option FreshBooks to be the better option. I've been a FreshBooks user now for nearly seven years, and among all the things I love about it, one of them is cash flow tracking. All the little details about cash flow are kept in one place so that FreshBooks knows exactly what invoices I've sent, when I've sent them, who's paid me, who who owes me what. I love the fact that FreshBooks can show me whether or not a client has looked at the invoice that I've emailed them. FreshBooks can send late payment reminders to my clients automatically, which means I'm not chasing down clients for late payments. Sounds pretty good, right? You can also use the new FreshBooks deposits feature, which streamlines how you invoice for money up front when you're kicking off a project. All kinds of reasons to use FreshBooks. The important thing is to remember that getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple, even if you're not a numbers person, and especially if you're not a numbers person. They're offering a month of unrestricted use. You can use every feature totally free right now, and you do not need a credit card to take advantage of this month-long trial. Now, to claim your free month, just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Tim Sanders is the former Yahoo chief solutions officer and the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App. He is the co-founder of the research consultancy Deeper Media Inc. and a top-rated speaker lecturing widely at sales rallies, company kickoffs, and conventions. And Tim's latest book is the one I've just finished reading. And the one we're going to talk about today, it's called Deal Storming, the Secret Weapon that Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. I'm excited to have him. Tim, welcome to Read to Lead. 
Hey, glad to be with you, Jeff. Well, the obvious first question, I think, uh, so we have context for uh, the rest of our conversation, is this term you've coined. What do you mean exactly, Tim, by deal storming? Deal storming is the act of bringing together multiple perspectives to problem solve a deal. It could be a sale. It could be saving a big account. It could even be a strategic partnership. But when you bring together a team with multiple perspectives and manage them through a process, you're deal storming. Mm -hmm. Though we hadn't systematized it, we were... pretty good at the last company I worked for uh, at doing this. And, and, and so as I read the book uh, and, and as you've laid out the steps and the processes, I could see some of the similarities between some of the successes we had and the deal storming concept. So, so what about the person right now, Tim, thinking, uh, why is this even necessary? I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the developments from the last couple of decades that have increased the complexity of, of, of the sales process. Well, yeah, absolutely. At a higher level, the reason deal storming is necessary is because deal making, think about it like the funnel, mm. deal making from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel, yeah. um, is just not creative enough for, for the environment we're selling in today that I'm about to explain. <laughs> Brainstorming sucks, basically. I wish I could give it a better description, but <laughs> brainstorming has evolved into a goat rodeo. Mm. So, so brainstorming lacks structure. Brainstorming has the wrong ground rules for the 21st century. Um, so it's a very outdated idea. But, you know, the good thing about brainstorming and the good thing about deal making is they both have the right goals. Deal making is about process. Brainstorming is about innovation. When you put the two together, you solve each other's problems. So it's really a mashup. Think of it like Reese's peanut butter cups. Mm. Um, why is it so necessary? Um, Why do we need to have something in place that can get us unstuck? Um, (laughs) The reason is because we're getting stuck more often. Mm. When I first started selling, I sold radio in the 70s, and it was simple. You knocked on doors. You made a pitch. You got them interested. You made a demo. They bid on the demo. You picked up a check. If it worked, you pick up another check. Mm. That was the business. Um, Today, it's very difficult. I mean, back then, the analogy I use, if it was a video game, it's like paying pong. Or maybe Donkey Kong. (laughs) But today, you don't sell to a mom and pop or a singular decision maker. There are so many influencers and informers and sign-offs and blockers involved. You lobby to a committee. You operate in a world where the prospect brings you in almost 70% done. They do all their own research. They think they know their own problem. They think they know the solutions. They have attitudes about pricing. Um, So you have to unteach them. So much. Mm. Their tolerance for whatever clever way you're getting to them, presenting your value proposition to them, or closing them is going up. They've heard it all before. The shelf life for any sales innovation is just dropping rapidly. So, all of these things together, combined with the fact that we have more competition than ever, powered by cloud computing, powered by software as a service, all of these put pressure on us to solve problems faster than we did 10 years ago because rapid problem solving is how you win business in today's complicated selling environment and i have a saying and that is when the going gets tough the ambitious get innovative but you Mm. can't do it on your own you have to build teams to have all the different perspectives to spot Mm. what you've been missing and to combine ideas into the next best play and that's Not just the fundamental research I've done, but that's what MHI Global's research says, too. 
the the habit of conscious collaboration as the mechanism of innovation, that's what separates the good from the great. Uh, you had me at Goat Rodeo, so I'm, oh yeah, I'm on Goat board. Rodeo. Have you been involved in one of those where <laughs> yeah. they bring like 15 people into a meeting? You don't know why you're there. That's why it's, I call it a Goat Rodeo. You don't know why you're there. You don't know what you're supposed to do. You're 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 dumped on, and then they snap their fingers and say, "Everybody, ideas." There's no such thing as a bad idea. So if you're smart, it's like extra painful. And then you don't have any kind of ownership over what happens after that. And so the whole thing's just a mystery. Well, talk a bit, if you would, Tim, about this myth of, of the lone genius. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs comes to mind, for example, and how we tend to, to romanticize this myth outside looking in at, at other organizations. So I have to kind of preface all this by saying that for most of my life, Jeff, I believe that one person, one creative and bold person can invent something all by himself or herself and change the world, right? <laughs> right. Um, that was so important to me, you know, growing up with the great American dream and the world we live in. And then uh, almost four years ago, when I started doing a deep dive into the science and the research behind creativity, over and over again, I kept running into this myth, this myth, mm. the myth of the lone genius. Dave Berkus wrote a book called The, the Myths of Creativity that are really, really, really well-researched book. But basically, it's debunked every story I was raised to believe, whether it is, you know, uh, let's kind of, kind of go through them. Thomas Edison mm. d- doesn't ever invent anything in his life. What he does is put his name on 10,000 patents. Edison stands for 14 inventors in the scientific community. <laughs> he was a person, but he was more of an organizer. He knew how to spot two or three ideas and encourage people to combine them. We screw in a light bulb today because of one of Edison's janitorial assistants that saw him unscrewing a paint can and brought it to a meeting to solve the light bulb falls out of fixture problem. Mm. What made Edison a genius was the work, not the person. He was able to organize those teams, enforce his number one concept that ideas can come from anywhere, but he doesn't invent anything. Eli Whitney does not invent the cotton gin. The cotton gin was invented before Eli was born. He solved a problem. Cotton gins up until that time could only do long staple cotton, which there wasn't much of. Everything was short staple cotton. Eli Whitney figured out the short staple cotton problem. Um, Darwin does not come up with theory of evolution. His grandfather worked on it for 50 years. Darwin solves the scientific acceptance problem. (laughs) He introduces the idea that evolution occurred because of natural selection. Up until then, it was Big Bang Theory, which no one could accept. When he comes up with natural selection, everything changes. And by the way, he worked with 12 other people all pursuing the same problem at the same time. Just like Whitney had to work with the entire scientific community. The last thing I'll say is, you know, Steve Jobs. So we did a survey when we were putting the book together of over 3,000 people. And we asked a very simple question, who invented the iPod? And we allowed it to be like, you know, fill it in. Mm. And so usually on a fill it in, your, your winning answer is going to be in the 20th percentile, usually. Mm. Multiple choice, it gets better. But fill it in, you do 20%. We had almost 80%, 80%, okay? Um, <laughs> Steve Jobs, 80% of people said he invented it. Steve Jobs liked to say this. He said, I get embarrassed when people say I've invented things. He said, I never invented anything. I just spotted smart people and connections, and I encouraged them to finish work. 
So, so that's what he did, you know, with the studio. He took really smart guys like Johnny Ive and then later Tony Fidel, et cetera, and he encouraged them and he challenged them and he facilitated collaboration, even designed, as you know, he designed uh, facilities at work to get people to bump into each other and he encouraged Pixar to do the same thing. So it's important for us to understand that genius is not in a person, it is in the work. Mm-hmm. A song is created in collaboration with either a group or a producer or your audience. And until we let go of the lone genius myth, we will never collaborate because we think we can do it on our own. And and that's why it's so important for us to realize that genius is a team sport. The minute we buy into that and the research says it's true, the minute we open up the real possibilities of creation and innovation. Well, I spent a fair amount of time in radio, as 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 you did. In, in my time, though, was on the programming side, and not the sales mm-hmm. side. And as you well know, uh, those two departments can often butt heads <laughs> and have differing goals and agendas sometimes. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why I appreciated so much uh, the last company I worked for uh, is because we were very much sort of in line with many of the deal-storming ideas. But what would you say, Tim, to the salesperson or, or sales team maybe uh, concerned with losing control over over ownership uh, of the sales process? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the answer is with the right process, I swear it's not going to be a mess. Okay, <laughs> that's the important thing. Mm. Um, so radio, I'm, I remember – and and I was in radio, and then for like like several of my consulting gigs, I worked with radio groups, mm. and I taught them deal storming. So there was a church and state issue, right? So I'd talk to like morning show personalities because I do a lot in the morning show world, and so I tell a morning show, ask a morning show personality, what's your worst day at work? He goes, it's when you see those two sets of white knuckle hands at the top of your cube, and then a sales guy sticks his head over and says, I've got an idea for a promotion. And I've already sold it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? And so that's the clash that occurs. And I experienced that at Yahoo when yeah. I showed up where the content team didn't want to talk directly to the sales team. They thought everything we sold was interruptive. So anyway, <laughs> the, the issue for sales, and this is something I always have to overcome, is that sales is actually the biggest silo builder in an organization, believe it or not. Mm. And it's because of a lot of things. But the main thing is – By your very nature, you have more latitude than any other group in doing things, just by its nature. Mm -hmm. So you you go out into the field, you do things the way you want to do things, you sell, you develop your own process. Usually your organization's an island. You have your own training director, you do your own conferences, so you're used to that. And so you bring other people in, especially if they're coming from the land of no or the world of slow. So the (laughs) land of no is legal and finance and pricing. The world of slow is marketing and operations and partners. So so the one group tells you no all the time. The other group's going to get back to you. When you bring them in, you begin to worry that you're selling by committee. Mm. It reminds me of the old saying that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. <laughs> um, but, but we worry that we're going to bring in these people. We're going to give them a vote and a say, and it's going to slow us down. And it's gonna it's gonna take away our freedom, and most importantly, it's gonna jeopardize our commission. Okay, so those are the fears. Mm. Here's what I say: If you follow my advice and invite people who have a stake in the outcome, they will deliver better later. They will resolve issues better later. If you invite experts who know something about your problem, they're gonna three x three x your closing ratio on big deals. 
They're going to double your bring back ratio on lost accounts and they're going to cut the sales cycle by 25% because they don't have the constraints you do and they're going to see things under your nose that you've never spotted before. And I've witnessed this in 100 deal storms, no exaggeration. Mm. But the third issue is if you run your meetings right, it doesn't turn into a consensus-based committee. So when I invite people to join my team, because I never invite them to come to my meeting, I don't call it a committee. I don't call it an initiative. I call it a deal storm. And I say, I want you to be part of the team and serve as a resource because we need really good information and we need to make sure the next play is the next best play for everyone involved. So it's empowering. I'm asking you to come give me information. When I start that first deal storming meeting, I explain to everybody, account executive, I explain to everybody that my goal here is to improve my insights and information so I and my manager can set the next best play and that we, all of us, can help execute it. And I warn everybody when I'm an account executive, I, I warn everybody in the meeting. I say, we will not reach consensus. <laughs> Trust me. There are so many agendas in this room that trying to reach consensus will just waste our time. So I'm going to take everything you say into account. We're going to try as best as we can as a group to choose the finalists. But if we don't, then I'm going to take it all under advice. My manager and I are going to go out, choose the next best play, keep you in the loop. That's a little trick, Jeff, because <laughs> if you tell a group of smart people that you've handpicked that most people can't come to consensus, and if we can't, it's okay, you'll fix it, <laughs> they will fight you to prove <laughs> that they can come together around consensus. Mm. And what happens is we go from everybody likes an idea to everybody can live with an idea, and that's the secret to creating a decision that everybody will participate in on the back end. You are going to get more results, but you've got to follow a process and you've got to make sure to set everyone's expectations going in. But here's the last thing I'm going to say. Um, if you start treating the land of no as a partner instead of the police, you're going to teach them how to say yes. And you're going to bring them into the sales innovation process and you're going to change their world too. And it's going to help your whole company become more agile. So I think that if you really work at a sales-driven company, understand that culture is built one big deal or crisis at a time. Well, you touched on this a little bit, Tim. Uh, I'm curious to know if you can expound on this. What are some of the challenges you faced early on facilitating uh, these kinds of meetings with such a diverse uh, group of people? What, what were the ground rules you set to, to ensure success? So, my number one challenge is that meetings are too long and have a bad brand. Mm. So um, a deal storm usually requires at least three convened meetings of the entire team to work through the average big deal or solve the average big crisis. Mm. So it's not a one-off. And your attendance can't vary. So you can't be like all hands in the first meeting, <laughs> 70% in the second meeting, you know, and, and, and the skeleton crew for the third meeting, you're going to fail. So you got to make sure that meetings are short, effective, and pleasant, okay? So um, I don't like a meeting over two hours. Um, I like the first one to be an odd number, like an hour and a half if possible, or even an hour, and everybody stands. I want it to be quick. I want to develop a reputation that when you come to my meeting, we get stuff done. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing is it's really important that we structure the meeting to point towards the next best play, as opposed to having a meeting that's too loosey-goosey. And so the end of the meeting is, okay, this is great, learned a lot today, <laughs> let's have another meeting. 
It's the quickest <laughs> way to blow up your team. Mm. But if you walk out of that room with saying, this is what we're going to do. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. I'm going to do this. You'd be surprised how much enthusiasm people have because people are excellent and they want this kind of structure. So the important thing to do if you're going to do all these things is make sure that you have what I call gathering time. Actually, I got this from Michael Wilkinson, Secrets of Facilitation. Brilliant idea. If your meeting is at 10, have the gathering time for the meeting be 9.50, right outside the conference room. Hmm. That's where you're going to serve refreshments. That's where you, as the account executive, go make sure everybody important's there. <laughs> that gives you 10 whole minutes to text people like, where are you at? <laughs> and so that way, by having a gathering time, you really do start at 10. It really sends a signal to people, we're going to start at 10. When you start at 10, you have to understand you lay down the four ground rules. Okay, Ground rule number one. Ideas can come from anywhere. Hmm. Most important ground rule. Um, ideas don't just come from people in the discipline. Uh, and we, we, you'll explain why in the meeting, but basically you don't know what you don't know is the hallmark of the most creative people that found the most innovative solution. So hmm. enforce the rule. Rule number two um, is no distractions. So turn off your cell phones. Please. I, I, carry, <laughs> I carry a red card from FIFA World Cup with me. And we are your red card and a yellow card. So mm. we give you two yellow cards, you get a red card, you know, you're, you're out. <laughs> Just kidding. But we use some kind of visual to talk <laughs> about distractions. The third rule is stay on agenda. Because as I'm about to explain, the agenda has very specific parts. And if you get off agenda, the meeting's going to run late. And then the fourth idea is we act on facts and we research hunches. Mm. Which just leaves us room at the end of the meeting to have research assignments if someone has a hunch, because there's nothing wrong with the hunch, but if it's not factual, we shouldn't plan around it. So those right. are the four ground rules. The structure of the meeting is pretty simple. The first 15 minutes of the actual meeting content um, is around about a three-minute summary of the deal brief, which we'll talk about later. That's the deal brief everybody got two or three days before mm. that explained why we're stuck, what the opportunity is, what the influence map looks like, what we've tried to date and gave everybody in the room an assignment to think about. So there's a three-minute discussion just on the problem. Like, here's what we think the problem is, and this is our opportunity. And then there's about a 12-minute discussion on the problem. And this is important because oftentimes we're trying to solve the wrong problem. We're stuck in a deal, but what we're really trying to solve is a symptom and not the cause. So it's a really important 12 minutes of the meeting is where people can question, is this the, the real, the root cause of the problem, or is there something behind it? And so in the book, I talk about these different templates. My favorite one is the five whys. So we're stuck on a huge opportunity. The client's gone dark. They're not calling us back. Why is that? Well, I think we might have done something to offend them in the last meeting. Why is that? Well, because when we presented our research, they said that's BS and walked out of the room. Why did they say that? Well, because we'd shown it to them a few times before and they'd poked holes in it, but we decided to just update it. And why did you do that? And it kind of backs you up into a root cause. Mm. And the root cause is internal reporting is not credible to this client. They told us this multiple times. So then you go, oh. So the answer isn't getting our CEO to put a phone call in to light them back up again. The answer is for us to go get a third-party resource like a Nielsen to do their own audit of our stuff and then make that the pitch like they've been asking for all along. Yes, you say, and now you have an approach to solve the real problem. Um, and this is important because so many times in sales, we're like a fish in the fishbowl. Ask us about the water. 
We don't know about water. We're in the fishbowl. <laughs> so we just see the symptom. We just see, you know, the last thing that didn't go right to move us forward. And we always assume that's the problem. If you'll have 12 minutes of discussion about it, you'd be shocked at how the meeting gets shorter. <laughs> and then the last part of the meeting is about setting the next best play. And the analogy I use is that it's like the aperture of a camera. The first part of it, say the first 10 minutes, is opening. And that's where you can offer any idea as long as you have the key assumption behind it. What, what is your key assumption of why you think this is going to work? And then the narrowing portion is where you begin to debate the assumptions behind each ideas, eliminate the ones with faulty assumptions, and combine the ones with good assumptions but not great assumptions. And oftentimes by combining those ideas together, you get to the last phase of the meeting, the closing phase, where we're going to nominate the next best play. Based on the best one at hand, we might even set a backup or a runner-up if that one doesn't work. And that's the agenda for the meeting. You run it like that, and your meeting's going to produce something almost every time you get together. Uh, I skipped past this, but you hinted at it a moment ago, and I want to touch on this uh, before we go further. Shed some light, Tim, if you would, on, on what you've learned about the benefits of preparing deal-storming participants prior to everybody coming together. So um, one of your favorites and mine is the quote <laughs> by Louis Pasteur, right? Right, right. Chance favors the prepared mind. So this goes all the way back to a, a wonderful conversation I had with IDEO Labs co-founder Tom Kelly. And this is back when I was first putting together the Value Lab at Yahoo and we were creating these deal storms. And I said, you know, every time we get together all these different perspectives, I feel like we're buying a lottery ticket you know, for, for winning a deal. Right. And that's when Tom smiled at me and said, ah, chance favors the prepared mind. <laughs> and he went on to describe to me that all the great ideal inventions from pump soap to the Newton to whatever, he goes, they all came from the design briefs that had been issued days before. And he, he used this word that I've been researching for years now called incubation. Hmm. So he says, what happens is you recognize a problem you gather up a lot of grist for your mind to chew on, and then you give it an assignment to search the outer edges of the hard drive, and then you go on with your life. And in that mindless, mindful activity that <laughs> ranges from walking your dog to watching an old sitcom, your mind goes, how about this? Did you notice that? Mm. And it begins to incubate ideas. So when I took that back to Value Lab and I said, guys, we're getting it wrong. Um, you don't send out an agenda before a meeting. You send out a deal brief. I mean, we called it a parse at the time. And the reason why is because you can't send out war and peace. People <laughs> won't even open it, right? It's got to be like no more than three pages. It's got to be crisp. It's got to be short. It's got to be readable. So we, we wanted to create a three-page brief that basically would say, here's what we think the problem is and its root cause. Here's what we think the opportunity is based on a revenue basis or even something bigger than that. Our reputation, beaten arrival, something everybody could care about. Mm. Here's the influence map. Like th these are our champions, influencers, sign-offs, and blockers. And here's everything we've tried to date and links to Salesforce uh, if you want to see what we pitched or see what we said or snippets of an email. And then finally, here's an assignment for you, team member, before the next meeting. And that assignment might be to tell me, is there anyone missing from the team? That assignment might be, why don't you research some of the assumptions in our problem statement in case we're not getting it right? Or typically, the assignment can be, why don't you review the activities to date and come to the meeting with some ideas for the opening session of the solution phase. Mm. And if you want to have a deal store meeting, schedule it on Tuesday and then make sure by Thursday you've distributed the deal brief 
And then on Friday, you call or text or email everyone and ask them, did you read the deal brief? It's important. Your mind will chew on it over the weekend. (laughs) And I'm telling you, it will. If you do it like this, and everybody knows days in advance what the whole deal looks like, they come to the meeting Tuesday ready to rock and roll. And they have more clarity about the assumptions behind their ideas, and you've harnessed the power of incubation. Mm. Tim, can you can you give us a bit of an overview of some of the tools that you leverage throughout this process? I'm thinking specifically of, of the personas as one example that I, th- I thought was fascinating. So there, there's a chapter of the book called The Hacker, The Chef, and The Artist. And um, I got this from a creative that used to work in an ad agency and I was running an early sales collaboration meeting, and he showed up early. I'll never forget. He's Bill Miltenberger. And he had his feet on the desk, and I'm setting up all my flip charts. Because, see, when you said tools, that's what my mind went. <laughs> flip charts, magic markers, index cards, stars, all that <laughs> stuff. So he put his feet on his desk, and he says, so, so, so what's my role today? And I'm like, huh? And he goes, well, you know. What's our exercise? Mm. And I go, oh, oh, we're going to do this fishbone diagram thing from quality that I've looked. He goes, no, 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 no. What's my motivation? <laughs> he goes, he goes, are we chefing it up? Are we going to be a, are we going to be an artist and illustrate it up? I mean, what's my persona? And I went, wow, it's true. You got to put on a certain hat for a certain problem. Mm. And that's where I begin to realize that it's not just about whatever linear template you bring to a meeting think deal-making, it's what creative exercises do you employ that really get at the heart of what was possible with brainstorming. So, so the best way to set this up is to understand that in every sale, there's four levels. It's like a video game. There's four levels you got to get through to get to the top. So the first level is contact. Got to get to the right people, right? Mm. Second level is conceive. Got to figure out the right deal. Combination of products and services, right product, right price, right time. Conceive. Third level is convince. You got to convince them that they got to make a change because <laughs> you don't sell a product or a service, you sell change. Hmm. And then you got to convince them you're the best solution of all solutions. And then finally, the fourth level is you got to get them to sign a contract. So it's the contracting level. Hmm. So here's the point depending on which level you're stuck in, you put on a different hat. So, for example, if you're stuck at the contact level, You put on the hacker persona. The hacker takes an unorthodox but elegant approach to a problem. In the beginning, we thought of computer hackers, but now we just think about like the Tim Ferriss, the hack, Mm -hmm. the way that we do something completely different that is a little unorthodox, but it's actually much more simple about solving a problem. Mm -hmm. So the hacker always looks for an unexpected but appropriate route to get to a certain place. Think about that. When you get stuck at the front door in a sale, you got to take a different approach. That's why social selling has become such a big deal in the last three or four years because no one returns phone calls. <laughs> you can't just drop in and have a meeting anymore. So you got to be a hacker and think, well, I'll connect with him on LinkedIn and like his stuff and <laughs> share his stuff. And he'll finally answer my in-mail. And then we'll have this relationship over content. Then eventually he'll ask me about my product because he's read my blog. And that's social selling. That's just the hacker persona applied to the contact level. If you're stuck in conceive, oftentimes you've got to assume the persona of the chef because the chef thinks about what? Recipes. But the only reason they're good at recipes is because they have a broad knowledge of ingredients mm. and how they interact with each other. Mm. I, always, I always tell my groups, sales excellence starts and finishes with deep, deep, deep knowledge mm. about your company and your partner's capabilities. 
Only then do you try to explore the customer's problems. So the chef knows about the kitchen. The chef knows about plating. They know about presentation. So that mentality is really critical to figure out that unique set of combinations. If you get stuck in the convince level, you're going to put on the artist hat. You're going to show them, don't tell them. Mm. People resist facts and figures, but they lean into illustrations and stories. So as an artist, you're going to create something that has a visual mental impact on the prospect, usually so simple that they can sell it forward, right? Because Mm. there's no one decision maker. They are ambassadors on your behalf to people you will never meet that usually explain why you're stuck. And so as the artist, you figure out the right illustration, the right metaphor, the right story, and it sells you through. Finally, if you get stuck at the contracting level, revert back to the hacker mentality and take a different approach to getting the agreement done. And that's the three personas that apply to the four levels. Fascinating, fascinating. I want to get to a couple of questions, uh, Tim, not directly related to the book. Is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know before I do that? Yeah, I think what's really important to understand is that it's all about building relationships, empowering people to be a part of the process earlier, and rewarding people. Um, through recognition. When I showed up at Yahoo, um, I saw a company that was very dysfunctional across the silos. Content did not talk to sales. Engineering didn't return sales phone calls. Mm. It just There just w- weren't any tunnels between the silos. And so I spent my first year never eating with sales. I mean, I <laughs> built, I've built my deal storming capability one may I sit here at a time. <laughs> Because I learned growing up as a kid that the best time to build relationships is long before you need them. Oh, yeah. Right? So so build relationships across your company because that's how you're going to build teams later. And also remember that there are relationships. If Say if you're in a small business, there's relationships out there you can build too. You can get deal mentors. You can go on LinkedIn and find people that know something about your sales challenge and they can join your team. You can re- recruit mobilizers and inside champions at your prospect. They may not be decision makers, but they can make a huge difference to your quality of information, and they could fight for you when you're not around. So just remember, it's all about building relationships, but the punctuation here, I want to put the exclamation point, Mm. is you got to recognize everybody's contribution. Not their ideas, because those are shared works, but their contributions, and you need to always keep people in the loop if you want to keep your team together, and you got to be willing to repay the favor later if they need you to help them on their problem. Well, I have recently become aware of your love and and fascination with reading, and I'd be curious to know, Tim, what methods you use for for getting more reading done in in less time? What, in in your opinion, are some of those those great reads from the last couple of years, those ones you you go back to again and again? Well, um, I probably read three to four books a month, so I clip them pretty fast. Yeah. And I surround myself with reading opportunities like Dr. Phil hides Twinkies in every vehicle that transports him around in his life. That's just so mean to say that. Um, That was one of the things I learned from guys like Mark Cuban, who I worked for back in 97. I mean, you know what? If you prioritize reading and you realize it's the secret to your success, everywhere you go, you're reading. 
Mm. You got an audio book in your car ready to go when you get stuck in traffic. You got something loaded on your Kindle ready to go, even ready to read on your phone. It's your new habit when you first wake up for the first 45 minutes. It's your habit now as you go to bed for the last 45 minutes. If you devote time to reading, reading becomes effortless. I don't sleep on planes. I've flown 10 million miles since Mm. 1997. 10 million Okay, I don't. The only flights I sleep on are the ones to like, you know, South Africa Mm. or London where it's an overnight. But all my domestics, I read. I look at a four hour flight as an opportunity to read most of a good book. Mm. Um, I've learned to read pretty quickly. But I take copious notes. Hmm. I use a cliff and tag system. On hardcovers, I write on those inside pages. First two inside pages are great quotes. The last two inside pages at the end of the book are stuff that relates to my existing projects or my work. That way, later, I can reread the high points of that book in just a few minutes. And then I've totally used the same system on Kindle with note-taking. If you go to mykindle.com or kindle.amazon.com, you can – copy all of your notes and highlights right out of that and put it right in Evernote. That's what I do. And so that's how I keep up on all of my digital note taking. Um, and I've learned that the more you share book ideas with other people, the better your information becomes on what you should be reading. I'm not a huge fan of Amazon recommends. Uh, I like to go to the bookstore and noodle around for a couple of hours and discover books. Um, I like to read the introductions so I make sure I'm not buying a barticle, you know, a book that should have been an article. But the more you recommend books, the more book recommendations come into your life that are vetted. So with that being said, um, I, I really struggle with this question, you know, about three books I go back to over and over again because I'm such a voracious reader. Mm. I'm always thinking forward. I'm always yeah. looking for that next book, right? So it's like uh, I'm going to give you a couple of classics, but I'm going to tell you about a couple of new ones that just like blow my mind and get <laughs> me excited. So I really, really like um, Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal, who mm. led the forces in Iraq. And his theory was you've got to create these networks of teams, these little 150-person fighting forces, because in his mind, it takes a network to defeat a network. Mm. And in the book, he applies what he learned running the Iraq network of teams. He applies it to the modern world of business. And it makes a lot of sense because we're up against networks of teams as salespeople, as product developers, as marketers. So I love that book. Another new one I like is the new Adam Grant book, Originals. Um, it just builds upon the counterintuitive thinking about what it takes to really be a different thinker in the world we live in today. And that's a brand new book. Uh, must go get it. It's, it's a beautiful book, especially since he writes in that Malcolm Gladwell style. Mm-hmm. That's just so darn entertaining. <laughs> and then there's a book that just came out today, drum roll, and it's a book called Under New Management by David Burkus. And it's a bunch of really innovative ways of how to run your business that would really surprise you. So I like those three. But if mm-hmm. I were to go back and talk about a couple that I read um, often or refer to, um, Think and Grow Rich is still my go-to for perspective mm-hmm. and motivation by Napoleon Hill. Um, have a fixed purpose in your mind. Have a mastermind group. Um, and remember that you cannot betray your thoughts. Love that book. I love The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. It still informs my strategy. I still remember that your best client will accept a cheaper, lower quality service if it's more convenient. So you've got to keep disrupting yourself. Um, and then the final book I refer to a lot was written about four years ago. It's called Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. Yeah. And that's a great book to understand management and leadership style that you should not diminish people as the head, the brain, 
You should understand that their intelligence is not fixed and that your job as a manager is to stretch them to become more than they expected of themselves. And if you do that as a multiplier, you'll be wildly more successful and more satisfied with your work. And and not to be uh, the kind of leader that's threatened by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the best the best multipliers, she says, are you know those that talk to you about the idea that I want to hire people that are smarter than me. Yeah, yeah. I want to hire people that I work for someday. <laughs> that's a multiplier mentality. But they get a lot more performance out of their people and have a lot less regrettable turnover. Yeah, well, we've had her on the show uh, twice to talk about not only that book but Rookie Smart. Rookie Smart. Yeah, I love that yeah. one. The power uh, of not knowing, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and Multipliers was uh, one of my top one or two favorite books the year it came out. I just love yeah. that book. But those of you that, that really are fans of like book structure, I was telling Liz this at an event we were at a few weeks ago. What makes her so successful is she follows that Nancy Duarte spark line from Resonate, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Multipliers present you with a crisis as a reader because you got to make a decision. Either you're a multiplier or you're a diminisher. And if you don't know the answer, you're probably a diminisher. Well, that's a crisis, and that's a good book, because in a really good book, the author presents to you a black and white decision. In a really Mm. weak book, the author, out of some lack of confidence or whatever, they present to you a range of options, and it's very safe. So that's what I was telling her I thought Mm. made multipliers so very special. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned a lot of folks we've had on the show, not only uh, Liz, but uh, Nancy was our guest last week, along with Patty Sanchez, and uh, we had David Burkus on three weeks ago. So there you uh, go. <laughs> we're, we're, we're batting a thousand here, and you're uh, adding to that. Uh, I'm really excited to, to, to talk about this book and really enjoyed it. And when it came out several weeks ago, everybody I respect uh, w- was talking about it. It was David. It was Chris Brogan. It was uh, Michael Port. And many others, and and I knew when I saw all this, this this talk about it that that I had to figure out a way to get you on the show and 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 walk us through it. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll finish by just asking if there's anything coming up that you and your team are working on that you want to want to share about. Well, I um I'm just out on the road doing talks. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm at Sanders Says. You'll know that I have talks all over the country. So um. You know, just just visit that. Uh, uh, ping me on Sanders says, but um, I'd love to have you come to one of my gigs. Um, I'm just really focused right now, Jeff, on speaking at a lot of sales conferences to make a big difference on a lot of culture. Mm. Um, I'm probably heads down for the next year spreading the good word of deal storming. Mm. Well, thank you again for your time, Tim. Very much encourage everyone listening to purchase the book. Uh, it will it will definitely upend the way you lead your meetings for the better. Uh, so thank you, Tim, very very much. Absolutely. And I just want to say, too, that we've posted a free chapter of the book, Jeff, at oh, DealStorming. Man. Yeah, DealStorming.net. So if you go to DealStorming.net, you can download that whole Sales Genius is a Team Sport chapter. I think for, for listeners, that's a good first start. I think I counted a total of seven books, if I'm not mistaken, that Tim referenced at one point or another. Uh, to find links to each of these books, also the free chapter that Tim talked about and all the other resources we discussed, you can visit the show notes page for this episode, which can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 124 for episode 124. Remember to show some love to our sponsor, FreshBooks, currently offering a month of unrestricted use, totally free right now, and you do not need a credit card for the trial. To claim your free month, go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash 
Read to Lead. If you enjoy the show but have yet to rate and review it, I would really appreciate you doing so. You can do that in iTunes, readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes, or on Stitcher at readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh, 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 oh,